My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Today, my guest on the show would be famed linguist, political activist, prolific author, and public speaker, Dr. Noam Chomsky. Dr. Chomsky, thank you so much for being with us today. Pleased to be with you. Fantastic. So, my goal here today is to hopefully ask you a few questions that perhaps you don't get to be asked very often. So, uh, let's jump right in in our very limited time here with this one. Imagine that you meet a person who has never heard of you before and they ask you to introduce yourself and what you do. How would you do that in a couple of sentences? I'd say um, I teach at MIT. I've been there for 60 years. I, so I, I, my main work is in on language, uh, cognition, thinking, philosophy. Uh, I also have another life in which I'm a political activist and a writer on the contemporary affairs, uh, social and political issues, uh, historical questions, and so on. So two lives. <laughs> Is there a dominant life there? One takes over the other, or are they kind of fairly balanced? Depends on the period. Depends on what's happening. The political life tends to be more urgent. There are urgent issues all the time, so that tends to take priority. Mm -hmm. You have been at MIT for about 60 years, perhaps. Uh, and among other things, MIT is very famous for research in artificial intelligence. What, in your view, is artificial intelligence, and what are our chances of ever creating it? Well, it's a strange notion. I mean, in a certain sense, what I do is artificial intelligence. The, uh, what is, the term is usually used for is the effort to program um, machines, maybe computers, maybe robots, so as to uh, uh, mimic or approximate certain aspects of human behavior. Uh, that can be understood as a scientific project. Namely, trying, like you might try to construct a model of, the, say, insect navigation to try to understand insect navigation better. Mm -hmm. Or it could be as a, an effort to uh, uh, produce something of uh, utility, uh, like a robot that will clean your house for you. Uh, and uh, those, those are basically the two thrusts of artificial intelligence. I, I, they do not, uh, the, the work in the field is not about also about 60 years, uh, has not really given any uh, insight into the nature, any to speak of, into the nature of uh, thought and uh, organization of action and so on. And I don't think that's very surprising. Uh, even to understand uh, insect navigation is extremely difficult. In fact, even to understand how the uh, neuron of a giant squid distinguishes uh, food from uh, a danger, even that's a very difficult problem. Uh, to try to capture the nature of, say, human intelligence or human choice is a colossal problem way beyond the limits of, of, of contemporary science. So, if it is a colossal problem, does that mean it's insurmountable? 
we don't know. We never know uh, how much, how far science can reach. Uh, human beings are uh, organic creatures. We're not angels. And uh, there's a, it's generally believed, often believed, that humans can solve any problem. Uh, but that would be true only if we were angels. Uh, mm -hmm. Since we're uh, organic creatures, uh, like all others, we have certain uh, capacities, and the capacities have scope, and uh, they also have limits. And the scope and the limits are t tightly related. If we didn't have limits, we wouldn't have scope. Uh, the limits uh, determine what kind of a cognitive creature we are, and that gives us the capacity to explore, to inquire, and create in certain ways, but not necessarily in others. Uh, there will be uh, problems that are simply beyond our comprehension. And in fact, in the history of science and philosophy, there are quite interesting examples that have come up. Mm -hmm. Now, this may be a very long uh, journey, uh, and you have been in the past very critical of the approaches taken by uh, many or most uh, of the uh, researchers working in the field of artificial uh, intelligence. Would it be fair to say, uh, do you think that AI research is still headed in the wrong direction in your view? Well, some of the leading researchers in the field, including some colleagues of mine, uh, do believe and have said that uh, the pressure uh, to c create commercially viable and useful uh, devices to achieve certain ends has somewhat overcome field and driven the more science-oriented aspects of it into the margins. And I suspect that that's correct. Uh, actually, uh, if you look at the, what I call the science-oriented parts, like the, say, analogous to developing a model of the navigation, mm -hmm. that's the kind of work that uh, I and many others do. It's not called artificial intelligence, but uh, it's basically an effort to develop a theoretical understanding of the nature of uh, fundamental elements of human uh, intelligence and human cognitive capacity. Mm -hmm. It happens to be primarily on language, which is central to many such, uh, much of which makes us human, but uh, the same would be true of people studying vision or uh, children's acquisition of concept or uh, 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 other uh, uh, problems of uh, the choice and uh, Uh, and the conditions that under which it's undertaken and uh, reasoning and so on. So, in so, other words, it seems that you think that projects such as, for example, the Google autonomous self-driving car or IBM's Watson have kind of hijacked the research to, to produce other uh, products like those and, and, and are, are in, in that way costing the research into the more proper artificial intelligence? It's not a question of more proper, but of what you want to do. Like, I have nothing against self-driving cars. Yeah. That'd be make it easy to park my car. And <laughs> so fine. If they want to do that, it's okay. Just like I have nothing against uh, bigger bulldozers. They're probably better. Uh, so applied work to achieve some humanly sensible goal is perfectly fine, neither right nor wrong. Uh, Watson, I think, is a somewhat different story. I think that's uh, 
mainly a PR gimmick, frankly. I don't see what's uh, achieved by the, uh, except for maybe selling computers, uh, by showing that if you uh, spend a lot of time uh, packing a computer, let's say it takes a, a deep blue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was perfectly obvious 60 years ago that sooner or later, if you get uh, 50 grand masters together, to plan, to take as much time as they want, planning strategies for more, you know, imaginable occasions. Sooner or later, that'll reach a point where they can do better uh, in their, uh, than a particular, a single grandmaster who's restricted to, say, 45 minutes. I mean, that's almost obvious from the nature of the game. So having done it shows nothing except that you, you, you did what, is known, could be done. Uh, nothing is learned from it. Uh, in fact, this was uh, pretty well understood by the founder of the field, Alan Turing, great uh, mathematician who was uh, also the one of the founders of computer science. But he did write a famous paper back around 1950 on uh, Can Machines Think, some title like that. A very short paper, I think it's eight pages. And that basically set off the field of uh, artificial intelligence. There still, to this day, are prizes every year for $100,000 or something like that if you can pass what's called the Turing test. He called it his imitation game. Now, however, uh, Turing in that paper did point out, has a sentence in which he says, the question whether machines can think is too meaningless to deserve discussion. So let's put that aside. No no talk about thinking machines. Of course, machine here means program. It doesn't mean the computer on the physical object on your desk. It means the program that's written for it. That's what the term machine means. So the question whether the program in your computer can think is too meaningless to deserve discussion. And he's quite right, it is. So, but nevertheless thought that this was a useful project. Uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, he said it might be an ins- passing the imitation game test, you know, it's called the Turing test, uh, might be an incentive to construct better machines. And I suppose that could be true about Deep Blue. I don't know the details, but it's possible that in constructing Deep Blue, some ideas were developed about how to create uh, bigger memories or more accessible memories and so on. If so, that's fine. It's like uh, your bulldozer. Uh, but uh, he also said that he thought uh, maybe, uh, in, he said in 50 years, which has passed, uh, we would change our concept of thinking. Well, that hasn't happened, and uh, I don't expect it to happen in the uh, foreseeable future. We haven't gained that kind of insight into the nature of whatever it is that goes on in thinking. So, so you believe that Watson has symbolized no progress or embodied no progress whatsoever. I mean, one potential application that's been trumpeted lately in the media was the medical applications in diagnostics, yeah. uh, where Watson would be uh, supposedly much more accurate than any number of uh, experienced uh, doctors from a number of variety of fields, and thereby would potentially democratize medicine by uploading 
the Watson in the cloud and then allowing access to its uh, knowledge or to its uh, diagnostics ability via a simple smartphone, for example, anywhere in the world. Oh, that's fine. That's, uh, I have certainly no objection to that, just like uh, developing surgical techniques which change, say, a gallbladder operation from something that used to hospitalize a person for a week to something you can do, walk, in a, walk into the office and walk out. That's great. And if uh, collecting a lot of data, what you're referring to is a system that collects a lot of data, that has a rapid search procedure, and uh, so that it can discover an algorithm that enable it to discover particular things in the data. That's fine. You know, it's like a, a it's like a, a program that um, um, searches a document to find a word you're looking for. I have no objection to that. In fact, I think it's a nice idea. But that's different from understanding something about the nature of diagnosis, let's say. It's not telling you that. It's simply accumulating the understanding that has been achieved and running through it rapidly and uh, uh, comprehensively, uh, more so than, uh, say, a single individual can do, in particular an individual without much training. Mm-hmm. So, for example, some, like when I look at an X-ray, I don't see anything. If a trained radiologist looks at it, they see something. Now, it's conceivable that whatever a trained radiologist is doing could be programmed uh, in such a way that I could put it into my computer and then it would enable me to see what the trained radiologist is seeing. That's fine. That could be useful, not for me, but for, for a doctor somewhere who's not a trained radiologist. But, but what about... Everything else that that trained radiologist is doing, is it not conceivable that we can program uh, that everything else that they're doing could be potentially programmable one way or another? Well, just as it's uh, perfectly possible that uh, robots can replace uh, human labor on assembly lines. If they can, it's fine. Freeze humans up to do more creative things. And isn't that the sign of progress in some sense or another? It's a sign, if it depends what it's used for. Say, for example, let's take robots on assembly lines. If it's used to free up the workforce for more creative work, say, controlling production, making decisions about it, uh, uh, finding creative ways to act and so on, then it's to the good. If it's used as a device to maximize profit, and throw people into the trash can, then it's not good. Mm-hmm. I hope I have the chance to come back on that topic a little later, but let me just rush through here and ask you, what's the, what's the importance of reverse engineering the human brain as perhaps arguably a way of getting insights into making more progress for artificial intelligence? As, for example, another famous alumni of MIT, Ray Kurzweil, most notably argues. Well, Ray Kurzweil uh, made some useful devices, and he's a future. It's what's called a futurologist. He develops uh, elaborate speculations about what might happen uh, if people find that uh, stimulating. Okay, I don't particularly, but uh, I don't see uh, any particular achievement there, other than creating the devices that are useful. That's fine. Maybe a speech analysis device. 
I mean, let me just tell you a personal story. When I was appointed at MIT in 1955, almost 60 years ago, uh, I basically had no recognized profession. Uh, but I was, uh, they were willing to appoint me in, in the research lab of electronics uh, to work on a program on machine translation. Uh, in my interview with the director of the laboratory, uh, Jerome Wiesner, uh, we talked about the work I was doing, talked about the project. I told him, you know, be happy to have the position, and like to do the research there. But I told him, I'm not going to work on machine translation because it's totally pointless. Uh, if you, the way to do machine translation, I said, is just by brute force. Uh, and talked about some ways to do it by brute force. Uh, there was still a belief at the time that if enough was understood about what a translator does, you could program it, and that would get you to do machine translation. I felt then, as I feel now, that that was uh, high in the sky, just uh, uh, illusions. We didn't understand that much. And over the years, that I think has turned out to be true. Uh, Google has a translator, which is kind of useful. If you want to get the rough idea of what's in, say, some scientific article, it's in you know, some language you don't know, it's kind of helpful. But it's done by brute force. It doesn't give any insight into the nature of translation. That's a hard problem. Just as it's a hard problem to figure out how a bee can navigate. These are not trivial questions. And for humans, the problems are much greater than for insects for a lot of reasons. One reason is that we're just a lot more complex. You know, a bee, say, has maybe 800,000 neurons. You know, we have 10 billion. It's a big difference. The other reason is uh, that with other organisms, we allow ourselves to do invasive experimentation. With humans, we don't. I mean, it's not a sharp distinction, but significant distinction. So there are plenty of questions you can ask about say, the kind of problems I'm interested in, like, say, language acquisition, nature of language, so on, semantics. There are plenty of questions you can think of asking, but you can't, and you can even design an experiment to pursue them. And if you were, say, Mengele, you could carry out the experiment. But fortunately, we're not all Nazi doctors, so you can't carry out the experiment, which means you have to study human intelligence, human brain, in much more... Uh, indirect ways and that is an added difficulty over say studying bees there you can do any experiment you like so what's your take generally speaking about uh, race uh, technological singularity it's science fiction I don't see any particular reason to believe it if you want to play games with it okay because there are whole institutes uh, fearing, for example, the creation of artificial intelligence, like the machine uh, uh, MIRI, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, previously the Singularity Institute, who are fearing that once there is uh, artificial general intelligence smarter than humans, that would pretty much signal the end of our species. We shouldn't be concerned about that possibility, in your view? I think we should be concerned about the end of our species, but not for that reason. <laughs> we should be concerned about it because we are very busy dedicating ourselves to destroying the possibility for decent survival. Uh, we should worry about that. 
like the most recent uh, IPCC report. But the singularity stories are science fiction. Uh, for one thing, there's no we remember when people when you talk about machines, it's kind of misleading. People have a feeling, well, it's this cute little robot they had in Star Wars, you know, R2D2. A machine, the reference to machines is a reference to programs. The program that you put into a device that's sitting on your desk, the device itself is of no use for anything other than maybe uh, holding down papers. It's a paperweight, uh, but it can execute the program. Now, what's a program? A program is a theory. It's a theory. It's a theory written in a in an arcane, complex notation designed to be executed by the machine. But about the program, you ask the same questions you ask about any other theory. Does it give insight and understanding? Well, in fact, these theories don't. They're not designed with that in mind. And not surprisingly, they don't. Not much, maybe marginally. So what we're asking is, can we design a theory of being smart? And we're eons away from that. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we only have probably a couple of minutes at most. So I, I just want to ask you, do you think you've mentioned the sort of fundamental challenges that we're facing as humanity different in your view uh, than the technological singularity. Do you think we've made any progress as a civilization? Well, plenty of progress in all sorts of ways. I mean, things that were taken for granted as normal uh, in the 18th century would today be considered as utter barbarism. In fact, we don't have to go back that far. It takes a half the species, women. Uh, and when the American Constitution was established, women were not people. They were property. It took over British common law, which was the most advanced of the day, and which a woman was the property of her father transmitted to her husband. Uh, that continued until pretty recently. In fact, it was as recent as 1975, not that long ago that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, granted women the right, the right to serve on juries, meaning their peers. That's what a jury is, supposed to be a jury of your peers, people like you. Now that's a generation ago. And the, that's progress, very slow progress, agonizing. And in many ways, there's regression. But over time, the, the tendency is towards progress. Like I mentioned animal experimentation before. Until very recently, uh, animal, mammals, say cats, and primates, monkeys, were subjected to just about any kind of experimentation you wanted to do. That's no longer the case. There are pretty sharp restrictions, on, ethical restrictions on animal experimentation. Okay, I think all of this, whether it's the women, uh, you know, African-Americans, uh, immigrants, uh, whatever, now, there's a slow expansion of the moral sphere. Slow, but detectable. Uh, so, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, the state of California uh, agreed to allow undocumented immigrants to serve on juries. That's a little bit like allowing women to serve on juries. It's beginning to admit them barely into the category of human beings. Well, we long way to go on that, 
Uh, but these are small steps as progress. There's also regression. Uh, so take, say, the climate destruction, which we talked about. That not only are, the, are we carrying out the process of destroying the environment for decent existence, but we've become aware of it. So if you go back, say, 50 years, uh, it was happening, but there wasn't there was very little awareness of it. I remember myself very well uh, in the early 1970s, uh, two friends, personal friends, one of whom happened to be the head of meteorology at MIT, the other the head of earth sciences at Harvard. Well, both of them at about the same time started uh, a warning that there's a problem developing that we hadn't recognized with regard to the, what's now called global warming uh, that could be very serious in the future. But 20 years earlier, that was not known. Then it was beginning to be understood. Now, any rational person that recognizes to be extremely serious, and unfortunately, uh, any rational person doesn't happen to include a large part of the U.S. Congress. So one uh, leading commentator on uh, television recently uh, asked about this, said, well, we'll leave it in the hands of God. Okay, then we're, talking, we're saying, uh, let's consign our grandchildren to a kind of oblivion. Uh, that's uh, substantial, uh, but uh, there's a long way to go and not much time to do it. Uh, that's a lot more significant than uh, idle speculations about some potential singularity, at least in my view. You've said that there has been some slow uh, but still notable progress. Does that make you cautiously optimistic about our future, despite all the difficulties and challenges that we're definitely going to face, putting aside the singularity from environmental degradation, from nuclear proliferation and things like that? I think an objective observer from Mars, let's say, uh, looking at the human species uh, would conclude that uh, they're, they're an evolutionary error. Uh, that that they're designed in such a way that leads them to destroy themselves and probably much else along with them. Mm -hmm. I, that would be a rational conclusion. Uh, we can decide whether that conclusion is right or wrong. Uh, fate, that choice is in our hands. So I don't think it's a question of optimism or pessimism, but do we make the choice, the effort, to show that what looks like rational conclusion is nevertheless mistaken. That's up to us. Last two questions. Uh, do you think that uh, resource-based economy and the Venus Project, for example, or the Zeitgeist Movement provide an alternative structure where, as you say, perverse short-term short incentives for maximizing profits will not end up making otherwise good people being forced to make bad choices? It's pleasant ideas when I read it. I think, gee, that would be nice. Uh, but there are many other suggestions about what would be nice. For, can spin them off very Any quick. of your favorites? Yeah, my favorite are the ones I talk about. <laughs> like, uh, 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 democratic control of uh, every aspect of social life, of production, consumption, distribution, uh, 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 represent political representation, long way to go on that, and simply uh, creating, uh, expanding the sphere of 
uh, human and, in fact, animal rights. All of that's important. Uh, ending, there are very specific things that have to be dealt with, which is why I'm not much interested in these uh, kind of airy speculations. One of them we've talked about is uh, the destruction of the environment, which is extremely serious. The other you mentioned, it's kind of a miracle that we've escaped a nuclear war, literally a miracle. And you can't expect that miracle to continue. So something quickly and urgently has to be done to eliminate this curse. Yeah. Dr. Chomsky, my last question is, what is your most important message? The, the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? I'd like them, I think people ought to take a clear-eyed look at the world around us, where it's going, where it's likely to go if we are, remain passive and obedient and conformist, and that's a grim future, that's the conclusion of the observer from Mars, and then to decide what we can do to avert that tragedy. Thank you very much, Dr. Chomsky. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you.